Today's reading comes from Revelation 2, verses 18 through 29. Verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of Man, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, but her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her intensely suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. And I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the, to the churches. The book of Revelation, chapter 2. We've been looking at the churches in Asia Minor specifically discussed, or I should say actually addressed by our Lord in his glorified state to the Apostle John when he was in exile on the island of Patmos. And Christ comes to these seven churches and he is intervening intentionally out of his love for the church and his desire to see the church be the lampstands that he created them to be, living, sharing the gospel of grace. And he went to Ephesus and he said to Ephesus, you've lost your first love. And he calls them back to that first love, that right relationship. And he goes to Smyrna and he says to Smyrna, persecution is upon you and it's coming in a way that you've never seen before. Remain faithful. Do not turn to the left or the right. Fix your hope on me. And then last week we saw that he spoke to the church at Pergamum and he said, truth. You no longer know the truth of who I am. You no longer know the truth of who you've been called to be. So we have love. We have fidelity, we have truth, and we come to the church at Thyatira, and Christ calls us to freedom. Now, of the four that we've three we've discussed thus far, freedom is one that resonates deep in our culture. I mean, the American culture, the land of the free, it's something that's part of our DNA and has been for years. My hope is that this morning you will see three things from this passage in regards to freedom. One, the freedom that you have in Christ. Two, the freedom that we surrender. And three, how to regain it again. To the church at Thyatira, to the church at Camden Avenue, he says, this is the freedom you have in me. This is what happens when you surrender that freedom in me. And this is how you get it back if you've gone off track. And he gives us those three things. And by God's grace, we'll have ears to hear so that we can be the brilliant lampstands in this community today. Number one, the freedom gain. Look at verse 25. Don't you love it when pastors go toward the end of a passage and you say, can't we do this in order? Can't we go verse by verse? Sorry. Verse 25. Jesus said to them, only hold on to what you have until I come. Hold on to what you have. What was it that Christ was saying? Hold on to it. Don't let it go. What was it? 
It was the freedom that they had. It was the freedom that they knew. Living out the gospel of grace. Living under the power of being saved by grace through faith in Christ. They had that freedom. They were exercising that freedom to do what? To live holy lives. In fact, look at verse 19. We'll go back up and make you feel a little bit better here. Verse 19. This is the freedom they had. And this is how it was being manifest in their lives. Jesus said, I know your deeds. Look at what he says. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and your perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. This is amazing. He says to the church at Thyatira, I know. I know your love. I know your service. I know your deeds. I know your perseverance. You did not forsake your first love like we saw at Ephesus. You're remaining faithful. You've not compromised on truth like they did at Pergamum. I got this. And not only that, he said, but more so now than you did at first. Your love is growing. Your faith is deepening. Your passion for me is growing as well. And so he, he tells them this incredible, encouraging, um, and it should have been uplifting news as he identifies their character in him. And the fact that it was this freedom they had in the gospel that was leading to this holy living. And that's, we could describe verse 19 in that fashion. Their love, their service, their deeds, their perseverance, their, their faith. This is a manifestation of their freedom in Christ to be as they were created to be. How was how Thyatira able to do this? This was not a church, by the way. Smyrna, remember Smyrna had, it was a church of, of um, scholars and artists. And, and Pergamum was a church that was filled with power brokers and the religious elite. Thyatira was unique. They were, they were a blue-collar working-class church. Thyatira, the city was known as a city of workers. And that means they engaged in um, the making of fabrics, dye-casting, carpentry, um, uh, leather-making. They worked. They They were people that used their hands to sustain their lives. So how was it that this blue-collar, average Joe Schmo church could remain and hold on to the freedom that they had in Christ? And live such glorious, holy lives. How is it they were able to do this? They understood this fundamental biblical teaching. And that is that they were set free by the gospel of grace. And they were not going to return to their slavery and their idolatry for anything. Not any person, not any practice. They had heard, no doubt, what Paul said in Galatians chapter 5. That letter to the church of Galatians had circulated. And they knew when Paul said, it was for freedom that Christ set you free. And then he says, stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. They got past tense. Christ had set them free for freedom's sake. And therefore they said, nothing's going to draw us back to the slaves. We'll never become under that mastery again of of the wicked ways of this world. It was for freedom that they had been set free. And that's incredible. Christ set us free to do what? To exercise our freedom. But what does that mean? I mean, we hear that, and, and, our, and if, you're, if you're a good postmodern intellectual American, you think, ah, yes, freedom. That means free to do anything, and free to be anything, and say anything, without consequence, or without condition. Freedom in our culture today, unfortunately, is defined absolutely as an unconditional, no limitation, no boundary structure for life. Whatever you want to do, whatever you want to say, whatever you think, it doesn't matter how it impacts, that's what you do. That's freedom. But that's not freedom according to the Bible. In fact, you, you wouldn't even want that freedom 
Imagine a creation of creatures doing whatever they wanted whenever they wanted. Imagine every creature created by God living outside of its own structure. All plants, all trees, all animals, all insects, all people. What would you have? You'd have chaos. It'd be mayhem. It'd be anarchy. It would be a terrible place to live. And so freedom in the Old New Testament was never defined like that. In fact, that is a, a heresy and it's a lie that's made its way into the church. The Bible defines it, ironically, in almost the opposite manner. Listen. Freedom according to the Scriptures is every creature created by God living and being exactly as He intended it to live and be. You know what that means? That means every single creature, every planet, every, every plant and planets, every animal, every insect, and every human being living according to the laws set forth, the emotional, the physical, the spiritual, and the social laws set forth by God as we are created to be. Being as you're supposed to be, according to the structure and the parameters put in place by God. Let me ask you this. Just think about this for a minute. The rules that govern life. When a dog is being a dog. So what's a dog's life? I mean, dogs got a life, right? I mean, what do they do? They sleep 50 hours a day. They eat the food that you, you give them, right? When you come home after a long day of work, they greet you as though they haven't seen you in 10 years, Right? The dog will play with the kids. The dog gets the paper. The dog, when the dog is living as the dog is supposed to live, as the dog was created to live, guess what? That dog is free even though it has a master. If you have trees, if you have a fruit tree in your backyard and you have an apple tree, let's say, and the apple tree has good soil and good sunlight and good water and that apple tree produces fantastic sweet fruit, guess what? It is free. Now, if you take the contemporary teaching of freedom and you apply it, let's say you apply it to the dog, and you say to the dog, same owner, same house, let's get you out of here. And you try to get rid of that dog, that dog would run back home. Because that dog would understand that it was living freely as it was supposed to live as a dog. Let's take it, once, let's take it to the apple tree. And you, know, you have this apple tree in your backyard, and you say to the apple tree, same place every day, you never get to move. Same fruit year after year. Wouldn't you like to produce an orange maybe? And so wisely you take the concept of freedom in the culture and you take a saw and you cut it down. And you say, now go. Go and stay anywhere you want. Produce any fruit you want. What happens to the tree? It dies. It's no different for mankind. When you've been set free by the gospel of grace to live the holy lives that God has called you to live. And then when you actually begin to live those holy lives... When you begin to live in an obedient manner to the laws set forth by God, the statutes that are as sweet as honey, the scripture says, guess what? At that time, you are free for the first time. Only the fool thinks they're free apart from Christ. What you don't realize and what we don't realize is that we're actually slaves to our sin. Contrary to popular opinion, freedom is not the absence of rules. It's not the absence of laws. The Bible says freedom, biblical freedom, is living in accordance with the laws set forth by God as you were created to live. You, human beings, created in His image. So what does that mean? How were you created to live? God created you, He created me in His image. And He created us to live in a right relationship with Him. He created us... To know Him and be known by Him. To love Him and be loved by Him. He created us to serve in His kingdom. God created us, human beings. You were unique. You know that. 
No other creature was given the title Imago Dei in the image of God. Human beings were to have a special, intimate relationship with the Creator. To know Him personally and intimately and for all eternity to worship Him. To be in that right relationship. That's how you were created and that's when you are truly free. But then something horrific happened. And you all know the story. In the garden, there was the fall. There was sin. There was disobedience. And there was turning. And mankind, in his own wisdom, turned away from God and said, I do not need you. And was cast out. And from that moment, mankind went from being free in a right relationship with God to be enslaved to his own passions and his own desires. And we find ourselves in that perpetual state, sideways, lost, not in the right relationship with the one who sustains us and nourishes us and grows us in that freedom. Sin and death became our new masters. We lost our freedom to be who we're supposed to be. You realize that? Sin caused us to be who we're not supposed to be, not the creatures God created. A shadow, a figment, not fully human, but wretched, lost, pitiful creatures. No longer free. Enslaved. I used to fly out of an airport where a gentleman bought an old B-52. I'm sorry, a B-25. B-52 would be a little big. B-25, you know the B-25. It's a great airplane. It was a small bomber used during World War II. So the first time I saw it, I thought, wow. And the person that I was with said, wow, look, that's a B-25. I went, no, that's not. That's not even close. I mean, this thing, this thing was sitting. Its tires were flat. The windows were all broken. There were no engines on it. It was rusted. It, was, it looked like a, a B-25. It was a shell of a B-25. But a B-25 in its day could fly. And there was power. And it had a purpose. This B-25 had none of those abilities. It had no power. It was a shell. It was a shadow of what it used to be. We are no different. Apart from the freedom that Christ brings us. Mankind, dead in his sins and transgressions, is a shell, a shadow, not as we were created to be, not free to live holy lives, but slaves and masters to sin and death. You were created to worship him. You were created to love and be loved by him. And Jesus came along and he realized how desperately lost we were. And in his infinite wisdom and great grace came to undo the mess that we did. He came down, and through his death and resurrection, he set us free. And we always think, well, he he set us free, but to what? He set us free to be free. It was for freedom that Christ set us free, to be as we're supposed to be, to be holy people, to be a royal priesthood, set apart for his glory. And that means that he died, and he rose again, and he sent the Holy Spirit to empower us to live holy lives according to the law of God. You know what that means? You've been set free to live according to the law. You've been set free and empowered to be holy as He is holy. To love and to grow and to serve and be served. And Christ came and exercised this power. And He said to the church at Thyatira that He says to us today, Hold on to the freedom. And He has to tell them and He has to tell us because when we get the freedom at first, it's sweet and it's powerful. But then we fall back and we let go. He says, hold on to the freedom, hold on to the grace, hold on to the power. Don't turn to the left, don't turn to the right. And at first this is very encouraging. And then you get to verse 20. And you're getting this pattern now. Except for Smyrna and Philadelphia, this pattern will be repeated. He says, this is what you're doing great, but guess what? 
This I have against you. Look at verse 20. He says, I have this against you. What was it? I mean, what did the Lord have to say to this blue-collar, hard-working, loving, serving, compassionate church? Something that was wretched. In verse 20, he said, You tolerate, you church at Thyatira, you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Jezebel. Now you hear that name, if you've been in the church at all, you hear that name and you go, you should not, that name, and listen, it wasn't her real name, okay? The author was using, it was a nickname to tell us something about this woman. But what what does it mean? She was a prophetess, she was a false prophet, and she came into the church at Thyatira, and she brought heresy and false teaching, and she was misleading God's servants. But what, how bad was it? Her name says everything. Jezebel would be like saying, this city is Babylon. It would be the same as calling her an antichrist. You know the Jezebel of the Old Testament. The Jezebel, let me tell you about this Jezebel. The Jezebel of the Old Testament. There was no more derogatory term our Lord could have used for a woman than Jezebel. He knew, and the church at Thyatira, they knew. The Jezebel of the Old Testament, she was the daughter of a priest of Baal named Ethbaal. And this, her father murdered the king of Sidon and became king. And he was so passionate about Baalism, he wanted to, to promulgate this religion, that he, he made a treaty with Israel. King Ahab, not a good king. Not only did he, did he make this treaty with Israel, but he convinced Ahab to marry his daughter Jezebel. And as soon as Jezebel got in, we see in 1 Kings that Israel began to disintegrate. Baalism began to infect the culture and the families and the religion of Yahweh. So much so that Jezebel, when she got some authority, she brought in 850 Baal prophets. Her own prophets. And not only that, she brought them in and then she paid them. She sustained their lives by the offerings that were given by the people to worship Yahweh. And that wasn't bad enough. She brought in the 850 prophets and then she systematically, one by one, went after the prophets of God to kill them. You remember what happened with Elijah at Mount Carmel, right? The 850 prophets gather, and there's this triumphant victory over the prophets. I mean, it's fantastic. Elijah has one of his most fantastic, powerful moments. God comes down, and he kills all 850. And then what does Elijah do? He runs out in the desert, and he hides, thinking, what? This fantastic victory, and you're hiding. Why? Because Jezebel was a murderous, wicked woman. He was, right, he was rightfully fearful of this woman. She was so wicked that, you know, when Jehu threw her off the tower and she dies and then he takes his horse and does his thing, you know, it says that when the dogs came to eat her body, yeah, that's an ooh, that's good. You're listening, that's good. <laughs> the dogs would not, they ate her entire body except her hands, her feet, and her head. You know how, how profound that is? She was so wicked. Her hands were so wicked in spreading misery and evil, the dogs wouldn't even eat it. Her feet were so wicked and her mind so depraved that the dogs would not even eat it. That's how bad she was. That's what Christ is saying to the church at Thyatira. That this Jezebel in your midst that you've let in, that you, and he, that he used the word, that you tolerate. He says, I have this against you. Because what the church had done is let a wolf in sheep's clothing into their midst. They had let someone claiming the title prophet bring in heresy to mislead God's servants. The question for you and the question for me and my sister is, well, how, 
I mean, how did she, how did she get in? And how did she have such power to turn this faithful, loving, serving church away from the living God? And it was, it, she, was, she was savvy. What did she do? She tapped into the cultural weakness of the church. She came in and she looked around and she said, Ah, this is where I can get them. You know what that cultural weakness was? The church at Thyatira, because it was a blue-collar working church, a working-class church, the majority of the church was made up of those who were involved in trades. As I said, they were involved in the making of fabric and die-casting and leathering. And every single trade guild... Now listen, I'm giving you a bit of history, but it'll, it'll help you understand it. Every trade guild had an idol. Every, like if you were a carpenter at that time, there was, a, there was an idol that the carpenters worshipped. And that means this, that if you were a blue-collar, working male or female in the church of Thyatira, and you wanted, to be, uh, you wanted to be successful in your business, and you wanted to engage in trade, and make transactions, and sell your product, or have a service, guess what? You were compelled by the culture to go and worship these trade idols. That meant that you would go, depending upon the idol, you would go and you would genuflect and you'd bow down before the idol. Or you would take a little of the, of the incense and you would throw it into the fire to the idol. Or maybe you would engage in an idol feast and you would eat food that was sacrificed to the idols. Or worst case scenario, you would engage in, in uh, uh, temple prostitution and you would engage in sexual immorality in worship to the idol. But this is what you had to do. I mean, if you wanted to be promoted, if you wanted to be successful in your industry... If you wanted to make it, then you would bow down to these idols. And so you see how easily Jezebel came in and she, she taught directly to idol worship and sexual immorality to these trade guild idols. And she not only said to them, hey, this is necessary if you want to be successful. She said, this is a good thing. And how quickly, quickly they said, yes. How quickly we turn to those things that we so desperately want to hear and do. Especially if it means that we will be more successful, that we'll be promoted, that our goods and services will be purchased. We're not much different. The church is not much different. For them to turn from that which they knew to be true to that which was easy, that which was comfortable, that which was promoted. I don't know that we, Camden Avenue, are any different at all. I mean, how quickly do we turn our ears away from the truth of God as He reveals it in the Scriptures to that which we want to hear when our ears are tickled? We, we want to engage in that relationship even though we know it's wrong. We want to take that job even though we know it's wrong. We want to have money, lots of money, so I can buy lots of things when we know fundamentally that pursuit is wrong. We do the same thing by downplaying God's laws and simultaneously turning to the things the culture says, yes, this is good. And we do it like this. We say, well, no one's perfect. Hmm. Or everyone, I love this, everyone sins. Everyone's doing it. That, that's such a cliche, really? Are you going to use that? Everyone's doing it. Or, if I don't do this, if I don't work 70 hours a week, if I don't compromise my marriage, if I don't, you know, make sure I stay, then... Guess what? I won't be promoted. I won't get the job. I won't make the money. Trade guild idolatry. No different for us today. No one else seems to mind. I'm trying my best. Surely God will understand that I have to do these things. How many have come into the church 
heard the gospel of grace, repented and believed, and had been set free, only weeks or months later to return to a form of self-salvation, to go back to a work-based religion. I go to church now because if I don't, God will be angry. I give now because I'm hoping that God will see it and be pleased and let me in in the end. Peter addressed all this, this turning away in 2 Peter 2. Listen to what he says. He's He's talking about these Jezebels. He says, these Jezebels entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. Those who are saved by grace. And he says, they promise them freedom, these false teachers, while they themselves are slaves of depravity, for a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. Of them the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit, and a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. The compromise is grotesque. When you've been set free by Christ, how wicked and how miserable for you to return to the old ways, to return to the old idols, to return to the old things that had you and bound you. We compromise and we re-engage for rational reasons, right? I mean, this makes sense. But you know what happens? Not only do we become less human, less as we are created to be free in Christ, to live holy lives, not only are we less free, but you know what else happens? We tarnish the gospel of grace. Our testimony is against God, not for God. You guys all heard of the 19th century philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, right? Nietzsche said this. I'm sorry, listen to what he said. Nietzsche was an anti-Christian atheist philosopher. He said, if Christians want me to consider their redeemer, they're going to have to start looking a lot more redeemed. If Christians want me to consider their redeemer, they're going to have to start looking a lot more redeemed. The church at Thyatira had people professing Christ in the church that were not living as Christians. They were living as pagans. Brothers and sisters, there are people in your sphere of influence that know your title. They know you declare Christ. They know you claim to be a disciple. They know that you go to church. How many of them see you and see your life and say, if that's what it means to be saved, then I don't want to know this God. How many see us like that? And our testimony smears His name rather than brings Him glory. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, you know, I've never done anything like this. I've never committed idolatry like that. I've never slept with a temple prostitute. I don't even know what one is. I've never eaten at a a temple feast or an idol feast. Be careful, lest you deceive yourself into thinking that you won't fall into this trap. In fact, if you look with me at verse 24, Christ is talking about those who have gone astray. And He said this. He said, Those who have gone astray have learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. Now, you read that and you're like, oh, what are they? What are the deep secrets of Satan? And it sounds really, really bad, right? What was it? It's nothing like you think. It's those things that that deceive us that sound good. It's the deceptions that look right and are eloquently justified and embraced by the academic elite that we fall into. It is the very philosophy of hell itself. The deep things, the great weapons of Satan. You know, it's not... When we think of of Satan's great weapons, we think of, you know, things like World War II and death camps, Nazi Germany, evil, pure evil, right? We think of the KKK or or Charles Manson or Al-Qaeda or 9-11 or war or racism or oppression. We think of these things, and they are evil indeed, But if you don't think you fall into that category, then that evil has been used as a misdirection 
to lead you astray. How so? Jezebel, this Jezebel that made her way into the church of Thyatira, do you think she came in and said, guess what? I'm a false teacher. I'm a Jezebel. And you don't even know it. I'm going to come in and I'm going to sow heresy. I'm going to talk about idolatry. I'm going to talk about sexual immorality. Do you think she did that? No. She came into the church. She professed Christ her mouth. She was baptized. She went to Bible studies. She may have taught a Bible study. But what did she do? Day after day, week after week, she sowed the heresy, little by little. She began to teach against the fundamental orthodox teachings. And little by little, she led this incredibly orthodox, faithful, loving, blue-collar, hard-working church out of the gospel and into slavery, out of freedom and back to the idols. And she did it incrementally. She did it in little pieces, bit by bit, their movement. And listen, our movement's no different. I mean, people don't just one day get up and say, that's it, I'm leaving the church. I mean, sometimes, it's rare. Little by little. It's usually not some fantastic work of evil that scoops you up and takes you away. It's the little things that move you away from the Creator, inch by inch, day by day. The deep things. The deep secrets are the subtle, nuanced, eloquently spoken deceptions that grab you and move you. And then over weeks and months and years, you realize that you don't see Christ anymore at all. C.S. Lewis, in the Screwtape Letters, talking from the demonic perspective, put it like this. This is a demon speaking. Listen. The demon says, Do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate a man from God. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided their cumulative effect is to edge a man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards, if cards can do the trick. Indeed, listen to this, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, the soft underfoot, without sudden turns, without milestones, without signposts. Those are the deep secrets. The small movements, the subtle compromises, the reasonable justifications that make practical sense. These are the deep things that move us out into the darkness, away from the light, that move us from freedom to slavery. These things, they go like this. As a husband, you have a family, and you've been offered this great job, and you think to yourself, I can provide now for my family in a way they've never had. We can live in that wonderful house, and we can drive those beautiful cars, and we can live next door to those beautiful people, and we can play all those beautiful sports. But you know in taking this job, it will compromise your marriage and your time with your wife. It will compromise your ability to be the father and husband you've been called to be. You won't be able to be home from dinner. It will compromise your time in the weekends. It will compromise your ability to be a faithful, active member of a local church. Do you see how subtle it is? You see, on one hand, I want to give my family these great things. But if I do, I will have to sacrifice this. And almost without question, we take this. We choose the promotion. We take the greater golden calf at the expense of God, at the expense of our family. How many times do we distort the truth to get the promotion? How many times do we just twist things a bit to get the A? Just a little bit. How many times do we, we, we manipulate circumstances subtly to get the sale that will put us on top? Just a little bit. It's not completely dishonest, it's a little dishonest. 
How many times do we lie to our spouses about the amount of money we're actually spending? How many times do we lie to our bosses about why we actually missed work? How many times do we lie to our discipleship group as to why we're not there? I mean, the little tiny things, the excuses that over time build up that change character and change relationship with God. Small, incremental movements. You know, in the deep things, you go, that's not me. I'm here all the time. When the doors are open, I'm here. Guess what? There's another side of the deep secret, and that is religion making. That is you becoming the pious papal people. That's good. I like that. Pious papal people. The deep things, religion making, it goes like this. I will be a good father and therefore successful if I'm a good father. Therefore, I will raise my children like this. And you make all the rules and you live by them. I will be a good spouse and therefore accepted and loved by my husband if I do these things. And you make all the rules and you live by them. I will be the good friend and therefore redeemable as a person if I love and treat my friends like this. And therefore, you make all these rules and you live by them. You know what you've done? You become a Pharisee. Some of the deepest secrets of Satan is to make you as religious as you possibly can. I go to church. I attend Bible study. I teach a Bible study. I've been baptized four times, not once. I'm an Anna, Anna, Anabaptist. Do you remember the rich young ruler comes to Christ in Mark chapter 10? And he says to him, good Lord, how do I inherit eternal life? And Christ, I love it. He says, well, why do you call me good? Only the Father's good. This man comes to him and says, Good Lord. And Christ saying, Listen, you can't be good enough. You can't set rules and follow by them. You can't even take my rules and follow them. He says, You can't do it. It's one of the deep secrets of Satan. It's one of the greatest traps of human history to become as religious as you can. And Christ said, you can't get there. You cannot be free like that. You will only enslave yourself to religion. And so don't you see? You can enslave yourself to idolatry and breaking God's laws, or you can enslave yourself to trying to live by God's laws apart from the gospel of grace. Either way, you're a slave. Either way, you miss the boat. You haven't been set free. You don't have the power in Christ, and you can't live holy as He is holy. And the consequences, listen, this is no small thing. You go, yeah, I'm trying. This is no small thing. There are three things here, and I'll do them quickly. One, it dehumanizes you. When you enslave yourself to religion, or you enslave yourself to irreligion and idolatry and the, and the living as the world lives, you dehumanize yourself. You create in yourself a shadow of what you're supposed to be. You're that broken down, B-25, rusted out, engineless bomber. You can't fly. You have no power. You are doing to yourselves the very thing that God does not desire, and that is not being who you're supposed to be. But not only that, as we said, you ruin the testimony of Christ. I mean, Christ came along and said, Let your light shine before men in such a way they will see your good deeds and glorify my Father in heaven. Let them see it. Let them know it. But if you've compromised by becoming ultra-religious, or you've compromised by moving out into the world and being no different, then guess what? You can't be a light to anyone. They will only see darkness. But there's something else in here. Look back at verse 18. There's something in here that should rightfully cause you to go, <gasps> deep breaths. <clears throat> because this is real. 
Christ presents himself in verse 18. He said, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. You go, what does that mean? This is what it means. When you give up the freedom you have in Christ and you embrace the slavery of the idols and the sin and the death in your life, becoming religious or irreligious, either one, Not only do you dehumanize yourself, not only do you ruin your testimony, but guess what? There's a judge who stands ready to judge. This is a picture, and all the commentators agree, of a judge. His blazing fire eyes, you know what that means? He sees into the deep recesses of your soul. He knows everything. He knows every thought. He knows every word. He knows your whole life. That means you can't hide anything from him. Completely exposed. That make you a bit nervous. It makes me nervous. But not only that, he has bronze feet. And in that age, bronze was the metal. It was the hardest thing. And that means that he will smash to pieces the lies. He will smash to pieces the idolatry. He will smash to pieces those who follow the Jezebels. It's a judgment picture. Christ is saying, not only are you killing yourself, not only are you ruining the testimony for the gospel of grace, but guess what? I'm going to come and I'm going to judge. Look at, uh, if you don't believe me, look at verse 22. He said, I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and I will repay to each of you according to your deeds. This is radical. This is real. This is a real judge who will come again in glory and this will be our destiny. Will you stand before him and will he search your heart and see it to be true and pure because of the gospel of grace or will you stand before him and will you be destroyed by him? This is serious. Now, if you're sitting there going, Jezebel, I've been misled by Jezebels. I've gone astray. I've become religious. Hope is not lost. Because he says, this is the hope that you have in the freedom of the gospel of grace. This is how you've lost it. And now how do you recapture it? How do you get it back? There's hope here. Don't be dismayed. Look. Point number three. We'll finish up. Freedom is so difficult... You know that. Freedom is not an easy thing. Why Why do you think that we're so prone to give up the freedom that we have in Christ and go back to slavery? Go back to the idols. Go back to the sin. Why? I mean, people like, because we're, we're sinners. Yeah, but why do we go back? Fundamentally, whether you believe it or not, freedom terrifies us. Freedom terrifies us. Freedom requires responsibility. Freedom requires action as you were created to live and be. In fact, if you really want to be honest, even your freedom in Christ is somewhat terrifying. Do you remember, let's go back a bit, Old Testament Moses. Do you remember what happens when Moses goes up to Sinai and he's taken a little too long? Remember what happens? He goes up there. So here, the Israelites are set free from slavery. Free from their bondage in Egypt. They're set free and now they're out. Following God. Able to worship Yahweh freely. And what do they do? What do they do? Let me read to you. Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. 
And what do they do? They make a god of a golden calf. It was the same idol they had in Egypt. And they said, you know what? This freedom stuff's brutal. They said, make us a god. We want to enslave ourselves to a god. And what's so amazing, it was a god they knew wasn't even real. After all the experience with this living God, with Yahweh, they knew, but they wanted slavery. How many times in the desert did they grumble against Moses and say, why did you bring us out here? Why did you free us? Slavery was better. At least we had three meals and we had a bed. How dare you make us free? Freedom, fundamentally, is terrifying. And that's why our sin nature, we run back to the slaves. Freedom, fundamentally, is hard. There was a time, not too long ago, when Lori took the three kids and they were gone for a few days. (laughs) As a father and as a husband, who has spent the last 20 years being striving to love my wife and my children, to nurture them, to care for them, to serve them, to minister to them. When they disappeared out of my life, and I had time, and I relished the thought before they left, I'm going to have time to sleep without the kids saying, Get up, Dad. I might even sleep in. I'm going to have time to read whatever I want to read, and I'm going to have time to not eat salad. I'm going to have a cheeseburger breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And I had these great thoughts of freedom. And then you know what? Lori took the kids and they were gone. And i got to tell you, confessions of a pastor, I was a mess. It was pathetic. My time was wasted. I think I had like protein shakes every day. Which is not a good thing, by the way. I had all this freedom and I was a mess. Freedom is terrifying. Christ calls you and sets you free to live in accordance with Him, according to Him. So the point is this, listen. In John chapter 8, Jesus said, If you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will what? In the gospel of grace, you will be set free. You must come to terms with this. You must come to terms that there is freedom in the gospel. You must come to terms with the fact that there is responsibility in this freedom. To live a holy life. To be obedient. To submit to the law and love it. To not be terrified. And you can't, you can't manufacture this. The worst thing you could do is get up and leave right now. And then say, tomorrow, I'm going to be free and live holy. You can't make it happen. You cannot create holiness in yourself. Try it, and you'll become a Pharisee of Pharisees. You'll become a prideful, religious, hate-filled person, and no one will want to be around you. You can't manufacture. You go, all right, well, then how am I supposed to do this? Like, how? Listen, listen. It's a gift. It is given to you freely. Hmm? Freedom is freely given by God through the gospel of grace. This water's driving me batty. Look at verse 26. What do you get? What do you have to receive? Authority and a morning star. Christ comes along and He says, Listen, you had the freedom and you gave it up. But you can get it again. You can recapture it. You can reclaim it. First, verse 26, He says, To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. What does that mean? You know what that means? That means, this is extraordinary, that means in God's kingdom, someone who is saved by grace in God's kingdom will reign with Christ. 
You're going to have authority. You're going to have power. God's not going to seat you in a position of authority unless you've been set free to be the person you were created to be. And you know what that means? That means you will not reign until you are completely free of all the desires that will lead you astray. You will reign. You will no longer be enslaved to the biological desires that cast you out. You will no longer be enslaved as someone who sees the images on the television is captivated. Someone who is moved by the peer group. You will be able to live and be fully human as you were created to live in the beginning before the fall. You will be fully human and no longer a slave to your job, to your marriage, to your children, to your stock portfolio, to your retirement, to your golf game, to your car, to whatever it is that you're enslaved to now. Free. He will have you reign in a position of power because His Son took a position of lowliness. What's so extraordinary is that your destiny before you That Christ has established for you. He says, live out now. And what Christ did was this. He went to the cross. He died. And he rose again to empower you to be free and rule with him. He didn't just set us free and go, now go do the best that you can. He set us free and then has set us on a path path of glory and honor. You know you're going to be co-heirs and co-reigning with the king of the universe? That's a bit exciting. That's better than your promotion at work, you know. It's better than the new house. It's better than the car to reign with the king. On the cross, Jesus Christ gave up all of his authority and all of his power and he subjected himself to the most brutal humility and the most brutal wrath of God so that you could be put in a position of power. He exchanged, listen, his bronze feet for broken, shabby, worn-out sandals. He exchanged eyes of blazing fire for eyes filled with tears. Hmm? He went to the cross and endured the suffering and the misery and the pain and hell itself to set you free and then enthrone you. To bring you the glory and to bring you the honor and to bring you, guess what? His joy. To bring you His joy. He brought you this and He says to us now, You already have it. Live it out. Don't be tossed upon the waves and blown about by the wind. Don't listen to the Jezebels. Don't listen to the cultural sirens. Don't listen to the people saying, You gotta have it. You gotta have it. He says, Stop. He says, you now have the power and the authority in me to demolish the arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against me, to take every thought captive in me to reign. Do you see and know your future that is now? Second thing that Christ gives us to empower us to walk this terrifying path of freedom. Not only does he say, listen, your job is secure. Yesterday, I had a chance to go down to Los Angeles and attend a graduation ceremony at Biola University. And it was fantastic. I mean, it was a really good day overall. As, as good as graduation ceremonies can be. It was a good day. 
And there was a sense of freedom that, you know, these students had completed four years and now they were free to, and even in some of the speeches they're saying, you're free to go out and live the gospel of grace. Hopefully they were doing it while they were students as well. Another issue altogether. But they were free to go out. And amidst this freedom, the students that I talked to, there was also this, this tension and this fear. Because, you know, it's easy. You know, you're in grade school, and if all goes well, you go to middle school. And in middle school, all goes well, you go to high school. And in high school, if all goes well, you go to college. But then you end college, and then what? Then what? Then you've got to get a job, and you actually have to begin supporting your own life. Moms and dads are saying, yes, amen, preach it, pastor. You have to actually go and, and feed yourself. And there's that sense of, uh-oh. What I would love to have said had they given me the mic is, guess what, guys? You are free now, and you'll be free a month from now, and you'll be free a year from now, regardless of the job that you get. Why? Because your job, your future in Christ is set. Your future in Christ is secure. You've already been put in a position to reign. That hope of that secure future should bring a radical sense of peace and a radical sense of humility and a radical sense of courage right now to live now in the freedom of the gospel of grace. Not a week from now and not a year from now. But secondly, look at verse 28. There's something else that he says. That if you get this, everything falls into place. He said, To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will also give him the morning star. And you go, The morning star? Fantastic. What is that? What is the morning star? It sounds good. You know, I have a star named after me, so that's a good thing. Revelation chapter 22, verse 16 tells us the answer. Jesus Christ himself said, I, Jesus, am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. Christ is saying this, simply put, I give to you myself. Yes, I've set you free. Yes, I've done the work for you. Yes, my blood and my body sacrificed for you, for your blood and your body. Yes, you will reign from me. But infinitely better, guess what? You get me. You get all of who I am. You get all the intimacy and all the passion and all the love. You get the power. You get the joy. Christ is saying, you get my joy, which I've had for all eternity with the Father and the Spirit. You get my satisfaction. You know what that means, saints? That means no more anxiety, no more suffering, no more tears and pain and misery and depression and addiction and fear, and no more am I going to have money to pay the bills, and will I have a job next week, and will my sons be... No more of that joy, deep, resonating transforming joy. Because if you got the morning star, you know what? You have everything you need and you have everything you want infinitely more than you could ever imagine at this very moment. Do you know that? He says, I'm giving you myself. That means it doesn't, whatever happens on this side, you get married, you don't get married. You have kids, you don't have kids. You get a job, you get fired. You go, you get rich, you get bankrupt. You get sick or you stay healthy. It doesn't matter because ultimately you already have the morning star. You have everything in Him. Boy, I tell you, you get that. You get that paradigm shift that shapes your life and you'll be, you'll be weird, first of all, because the culture will not get you. You will be a people that do not chase after power and money and love and sex and materialism. You won't be those people. 
you'll be a holy people. You'll be a royal priesthood. You'll be a people set apart for God's glory and you will, your lives will scream the gospel of grace. Your lives will emulate and live out freedom and people will say, whatever it is that you have, I want it. Give it to me. And you share the gospel. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Let me ask you point blank. How are you doing with your freedom? How are you doing Camden Avenue with your freedom? Are we living freely? And that doesn't mean doing anything we want to do and indulging the flesh. That doesn't mean uh, going out and becoming extremely religious. It doesn't mean squandering your time. Have you embraced the freedom that comes through the truth of the gospel? And are you living holy lives in accordance with this holy word? Because that's the litmus test. Do you love the law? Do you you, you savor his statutes? Do you desire deeply to be obedient? Because you know in your obedience you are the most free. That you are being the people that God created you to be. Human beings created in His image to be holy and glorious and beautiful and joyful, authentic human beings to love and serve and minister and grow and heal a community and heal one another. This is, hmm, this is good. If you're, not, if you're saying, you know, I, you don't like it, there's something wrong, fundamentally wrong. Every soul in their heart of hearts desires deeply to be free. But not every soul knows freedom. There's a constant movement to to see and to know. And yet sin and darkness holds us bound apart from the gospel coming in and setting you free. I'll close with a story. It's a good one. In the 14th century, there was a duke by the name of Duke Reinhold III. A Belgium duke. If you know your Belgium history, which most... uh, I don't, but if you do, you'll know this guy. He had a brother named Edward. And Edward, Edward loved his brother, but there was a, it was a love-hate relationship. This Duke Reinhold had a nickname. It was Crassus, which is Latin for fat. He was an obese man. His brother Edward came and he took his ducal throne, took his seat, and he imprisoned him. But he did something that was fascinating and it really threw the people for a loop. And he said to his brother, Listen, you can have your throne back at any time. You can be seated again in a position of power and authority. All you have to do is what I ask. So Edward, his brother, built a room. A normal-sized room with a normal-sized door. And he says, In order to have your seat back, all you have to do is come out that door. All you have to do is come out the door and the seat's yours. The power is yours. The freedom was there. The, gu- the door was left unlocked and unguarded. But he was too large to get through the door. And then his brother Edward, four times a day, would bring him the most luxurious meals. In the morning, he would bring him a gourmet breakfast. At lunch, it was this glorious meal. In the afternoon, there was ice cream and snacks. And for dinner, there was ham and turkey and mashed potatoes. What did Reinhold choose? The door was set before him. 
He never set foot out of that room again. He died in that room. Why? What was it? Freedom was offered. The freedom of God's grace is offered. This man, we, we choose slavery. We choose sin. We run to the darkness. Christ comes and He says, Here is the light. I am the light. He calls us. He directs us. Camden Avenue, are you going to sit in the room and indulge in the sin to your death? Or do you see the gospel of grace set before you? The door, the freedom, the life. Do you know who you were meant to be? And are you, through the power of the gospel, becoming that person, beautiful, glorious, a child of the King? Through the cross of Christ, He opened the door wide. Revelation 2.29 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Camden Avenue Baptist Church, are you living out the freedom you have through the gospel of grace? Let's pray to that end. Father, we recognize the incredible difficulty of living freely. I pray this morning that we would see through the cross of your Son that the sacrifice that He made was to indeed set us free, not to remain in the room, not to be enslaved to the sin that binds us, not to hide in the darkness, but to walk through that door that your Son gave His life to open to embrace the gospel fully and to become the people, the holy people, the royal priesthood set apart for your glory, that we as a church, that Camden Avenue Baptist Church and your holy church throughout the world will become so glorious as lampstands, so brilliant that people will be drawn to it, that we would know each day the freedom that was offered, that we would know each day the cost the incredible, infinite cost of that freedom, and that we would live in it, that we would lovingly obey, that we would see that the law is good and sweet, and when our lives are aligned by it because of the power of the gospel of grace, we are never more free, we're never more glorious, and we're never more beautiful to our Creator. Because in those moments, in that life, we are, as you created us to be, human beings in your image. Make that happen here, Father. We cannot create this. We cannot manifest it ourselves. Make it happen. Make us holy. Make us free, I pray. In Christ's holy, powerful, and free name. Amen.